welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Psalm 5, so you can turn to Romans 8. Before we get there, um, I want to talk a little bit about hermeneutics. Why? Well, because I was prepared to teach this lesson last week. We missed last week because of the severe weather that was happening here in Smyrna, which means that I've had another week to think about all this, and so now I get to unload all of that on you all. I want to talk about hermeneutics a little bit tonight, and importantly, the relationship, the correlation between the Old and the New Testament. Because frequently, as we're going through the Psalms, we're going to continue to compare the Psalms to how they are used in the New Testament. But as I've been looking at some of the things that Paul has developed theologically, that he has taken right from David's writing it was impressed on me yet again that so much of the New Testament writing, theology, even revelation that is represented in the New Testament is not new. It's not unique. It's not something that Paul came up with. In fact, even in the places where Paul says that something is a mystery, a previously unrevealed truth, he still says that the prophets have foreshadowed that stuff. They've written about it. People just didn't understand it. In other words, so much of the New Testament is actually commentary on what's already been written in the Old Testament. An example I can think of right here from the book of Romans is Paul in chapter 7 talking about the fact that he wouldn't have known that he was guilty of coveting had the law not said, thou shalt not covet. And that's when he came to realize his guilt and led him to say, Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Because what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Well, he's developing all that from the Pentateuch. This is Paul who, in his own resume, said that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the Pharisees. Before the law, blameless. In other words, he's claiming that he's very familiar with what's already written in what we would call the Old Testament which he calls the scriptures. That's why he says all scripture is God-breathed, because he knows what those scriptures are, and he is saying that the Old Testament is, in fact, the very word of God breathed out by God. And so, so much of what he writes and so much of what the other New Testament writers write is based in what we call the Old Testament. Now, there are people who say that you need to interpret and understand the Old Testament based on the New Testament. The phrase they use is, we read the Old Testament through the New Testament. But too often what they mean when they say that is, we ignore most of what's in the Old Testament because now we have the New Testament, and so we're just going to read that. But I contend that given everything I've already said about how the New Testament is commentary on the old in so many instances, 
that if you don't know your Old Testament, when you come to the New Testament, you're going to get a very limited, very truncated, very narrow understanding of it. The more you understand the Old Testament and how it has influenced the New Testament writers, the deeper the New Testament's going to be to you. The whole of the Bible is going to make more sense contextually to you, and you're going to understand the flow of redemptive history as it's represented in the Bible because you understand the flow of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, with Israel and the church in the New Testament, and the tremendous respect, awe, that Paul has for the scripture, for the Old Testament. Not only saying that it's God breathed, but for heaven's sake, he says to Timothy, before Christ himself and all his angels, my instruction to you is preach the word. And when he said that, he wasn't saying, preach this letter I'm sending to you. He's saying, preach the scripture because it is God breathed. So what I hope to show you yet again tonight and that we're going to just keep seeing over and over as we're going through the Psalms, is that so much of Pauline thinking is based on his knowledge of the Old Testament and specifically of the Psalms. We're going to see two passages tonight where Paul is just drawing directly from the Psalms. He's influenced by the Psalms, and he's just inculcating that right into his overall theology. It's just part of his writing, And sometimes, my last point for this introduction, sometimes Paul says it almost in shorthand because the people he's writing to, the early church, were predominantly Israelites, predominantly Jews, and so they're familiar with their Old Testament. They're familiar with what the prophets have said. They're familiar with the Psalms, which are beloved to them. And so Paul can make references in shorthand that would resonate to the first century Jewish mind. They would instantly know, oh, that's very Davidic. That that makes complete sense to me. But because over the last 2,000 years, we've become less and less familiar with our Old Testament, we see these statements and don't automatically connect them to their history. So many of the statements in the New Testament have a rich history behind them. And so I hope as we continue to go through the Psalms to keep drawing this out, to keep pointing it out. And I realize at some point it's going to get tiring to you. At some point you're going to say, okay, move on, Jim. We get it. You don't need to keep pointing this out to us, but I think we do. I think we need to keep pointing it out because it's such a largely ignored fact when teaching is going on in the church these days from the New Testament, ignoring the connection to the Psalms. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we are going to start tonight by looking at something that Paul wrote in Romans 8. And it is something that every time I read it, it just, I understand it. I just, I relate to it utterly and completely. I think anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time relates to what Paul is saying here. What's important to realize is Paul is getting it from David's writing. He's getting it from Psalm 5 and other psalms like that where David talks about his inability to rightly pray to God. We're going to be looking at Romans 
8, starting at verse 26. And in it, Paul says that we don't, we just don't know how to pray the way that we ought to, that we're just so weak that sometimes the most that we can hope to do is just groan before God because sometimes the events of this life, the difficulties of this life, the pain of this life, the, the hurts, the separations of this life just become so much that we go to God because we don't know where else to go. I mean, God will corner us that way where he is our only resource. And so we go before him, we want his attention, and then we just, we just don't know what to say. How do you find words to explain the depth of the hurt and the despair that we all go through in this lifetime? Well, Paul writes about that. But Paul's writing about it because David wrote about it. So this is Paul's commentary on it. And yes, Paul expands on it a little bit and develops some theology around it. But he's doing that because he already knows from the Psalms that this is how the people of God sometimes approach God, is just with, just with groanings that are too impossible to speak. Here's what it says. Starting at verse 26 of Romans 8, and in the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, also helps our weakness. That's our inability. I mean, come on, really. If you go to God and you get God's attention, God is paying attention to you. If you have any concept of who God is or what God's really like, you should be in complete awe before him. It's really difficult sometimes to find the words to say, oh, you're magnificent and you're overwhelming and, and you're gracious and kind and, and loving and you're sovereign and you're taking me through this and I'm really in pain and I don't mean to be complaining, but I really hurt and I, I, just, I can't find my words to express it to you because you're so far beyond me. You're so high and holy and I'm so wretched here before you. How do I possibly come before you and talk to you about my pain? And so Paul says, the spirit is going to help us through that inability, through our fleshly weakness where we don't know how to pray to God. For we do not know how to pray as we ought to. That's a fact we'd all have to admit. Here in our sinful flesh, I mean, come on, Steve. Steve 1 or Steve 2. Steve or the sequel. When it comes to actually knowing how to approach God and how to pray to God, are you confident that you know exactly how to do it, how to use the right words, the right combination of words, how to convince him of things, how to worship him in spirit and in truth, knowing that you're living in this corrupt human flesh. Can you do that? I do know that even if I were perfectly eloquent in uttering what God wanted me to utter, yeah. it still wouldn't be worthy. I heard a pastor many years ago, and I've said this so many times, but he said, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to send me straight to hell. Because we live here in this fleshly body, this sinful body. Have you ever found yourself praying, and I mean praying, I mean sincerely praying, I mean 
begging God, crying out to God, just really worshiping God. And, and suddenly some stupid little random ugly thought will go through your head. Or at the end of the day when I'm praying, sometimes I make myself get out of bed and just get on my knees next to the bed. Because if I'm laying down praying, my mind starts wandering. And next thing I know, I'm thinking about completely random things in the middle of what was a reasonable prayer. I think we all do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we don't know how to pray as we should. The very good news, according to Paul, is that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Thank God. Sometimes we can't find the words. We don't know the words. All we've got left is just our groaning, just our impassioned cries to God. And it's good to know that the Holy Spirit of God gathers those, cleans them up, makes them into an appropriate form of worship, which is why a couple of times in the book of Revelation we read about the elders having Incense, that is, the prayers of saints that send a sweet savor into the nostrils of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit doing what we simply can't do. We are incapable. We are too weak to pray like that. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, cleans up our prayers, even when we're just groaning to him. Then he will go to God for us. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts... That's the spirit of God. That's God himself. He searches your heart. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows the sincerity of your heart. He knows the pain of your heart. He knows whatever joys or agonies you're going through. And because he's actively searching your heart, God knows what the mind or the inclination or the purpose of the spirit is. And because he understands the mind and the spirit then that spirit can go intercede for the saints according to the will of God. So we don't know how to go to God according to the will of God, proven by the fact that none of us even know what it is to worship in spirit and truth, especially on a constant basis. None of us know how to do that. It's really good to know that the spirit of God, who is understood completely by God, can take our groanings carry them to God, and then intercede for us and do it in such a way that it's in accordance with the will of God. I can't do it according to the will of God. I've proven that too many times. And so, as I keep on saying, everything necessary for our full, complete redemption and salvation, everything necessary for our relationship with God and our eternity with God is supplied by God, including the fact that he would tell us to come talk to him and come pray to him. And when we do that, we're no good at it, but he has provided a means, an intercessor, the Holy Spirit, who will listen to our prayers and our groanings and our pain and then carry that to God on our behalf, intercede for us and do it all according to the will of God. Okay, where did Paul get all that theology? Because it's great theology. Two little verses right there that made everybody in the room go, oh, yes. Every Christian, every genuine believer, every struggling saint on this planet knows how to relate to those two verses. Well, Paul got that idea from David. 
He got it from the Psalms. So now I'll go to Psalm 5. It is now 7.30 and my introduction just ended. And we've got a ways to go. For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Here David begins praying to God. Praying that God would pay attention to him. Please listen to what I'm going to say to you, even though, as we're going to find out in a minute, David can't quite find his words. He doesn't know what he's trying to say in accurate words. This psalm goes under two titles. This psalm is sometimes called a mourning psalm because David is going to refer to the fact that he's praying to God in the morning. The last hymn that we saw two weeks ago was called an evening or a nighttime psalm because it ended with, in peace, I'll lay down and I'll sleep, and you make me dwell safely. And so that's a nighttime psalm. This is a morning psalm. You put them both together, you see that David ends every day and starts every day by praying to God, by looking to God for his sustenance through a day. As we continue through the psalm, you're also going to see your first example of an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is... One of the psalms where David asks God to pour out vengeance on his enemies, on David's enemies. Protect me and go and judge my enemies for me. That's what imprecatory means. So give ear to my words, Lord, and consider my groaning. Don't just listen to my words. Hear from my heart. Listen as I'm groaning. I'm in pain. I'm in trouble. In fact, in the second verse, he said, heed the sound of my cry for help. He's in pain here. He's struggling here. He's in difficulty here. Now, we don't know what the particular historic moment was. We know that David had a lot of difficulties like this in his life, even though he was the man after God's own heart, even though he's the man that God himself made the king of Israel. He nevertheless had a tremendous amount of difficulty in his life. And so now as he's struggling, as he's suffering, he's praying, hear my words, pay attention to me, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Make sense of my groaning. Make sense of the fact that I can't find my words. Heed the sound of my cry for help my king, and my God. David, of course, was king of Israel and admitted that God was his ruler, his king, his everlasting savior, my king and my God. For to thee do I pray, I ask, I beg, I come before you with all of my pain, my hurts, my concerns, and all I want you to do if you can't If I can't find my words, if I can't get the right word, just hear my heart, just hear my groaning, just hear my pain. That's what David's saying. Same thing Paul picked up and wrote that there is a way that God hears your groaning and your pain and that he does it through the Holy Spirit interceding for you. So Paul is commentating on David. Verse 3. In the morning, O Yahweh, Thou wilt hear my voice. In the morning, 
I will order. Now, the NASB adds two words here and says, I will order my prayer to thee. But more than likely, since this is just inserted words, more than likely the ordering that David was doing every morning was his sacrifices, not his prayers. I mean, it was necessary to do the morning sacrifice every day, and they had to be laid in order. So I think what David was saying here is he's worshiping God, he's praying to God, he's asking that God would pay attention, listen to him, and in the morning, I will worship you, I will keep the way that you have ordered things, and I will set about things in order to thee and watch. Now, the NASB, again, adds the word eagerly. It's not in the original text. It doesn't say, I'll eagerly watch. The implication is David is saying, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in charge. I'm going to come and ask for your help. I'm going to groan to you. I'm going to cry to you. I'm going to beg you. Pay attention to me. Hear my words because I'm going to worship you. I'm going to lay the things in order before you that you require. And then I'm going to leave it in your hands. I'm going to step back and watch and see what you do with it. All my life as a Christian boy, I've heard people use the uh, clever little phrase that when you pray to God, sometimes God's answer is yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's wait. But here's David saying, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to cry to you. And then I'm going to offer my sacrifice and then I'm going to wait to see what you do because in the end it's up to you this is the same David who said God is on his throne doing whatever seemed good to him so David doesn't think that his convincing words or like Steve said no amount of eloquence on his part is going to change God's mind or convince God but David also knows that when he's cornered he's got nowhere to go but God So he goes, he prays to God, he asks God, he says, hear my groaning, understand my words, I'm going to sacrifice, praise, worship you, and then I'm going to back away, and you do what only you can do. And whatever it is you do, I'm satisfied with that. What a great lesson on prayer that is. We go to God, we let him know what our petitions are, we do it, as Paul said, with thanksgiving, And then we leave it in God's hands, knowing that whatever he does is for his greatest glory and our greatest good. Why can you have that kind of confidence? Because verse 4 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and no evil dwells with thee. Okay, now David's about to get into the imprecatory section of this psalm. He's going to be asking God to fight for him and to punish his enemies. And so he is saying, I can ask you for things and I'll pray for things and I will groan to you. But in the end, I know that you're going to do what's right. And whatever you do, I'm going to wait on you to do it. I'm going to watch. I'm going to pay attention to what you do. But I know this. I know you hate sin. I know this. You you cannot abide sin. You take no pleasure in wickedness and no evil dwells anywhere near you. So I'm confident that my enemies who are nothing but evil are at some point going to have to deal with you. And I can leave them in your hands because 
you can pour out vengeance a lot more than I can. You are a God who does not take pleasure in wickedness, and no evil dwells with you. And the boastful, there it is, pride again, isn't it? Interesting how often pride comes up in the Bible. That's why I keep saying it's the most often recited sin, repeated sin in the Bible. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And you do hate all who do iniquity. By the way, that phrase right there, if we wanted to extrapolate on it a little theologically, you've probably seen the bumper stickers, seen the t-shirts, or heard the phrase, God hates the sin, not the sinner. Here David said, you hate the sinner. Because what the Bible says is God's going to judge the sinner, not just the sin. God actually has judgment awaiting his enemies. And the boastful, the prideful, the arrogant, those who are full of themselves and want nothing to do with God are never going to stand before his eyes. They're never going to receive approval in his presence because he hates all those who sin against him, who do iniquity against him. Well, that's really bad news for us. God hates everybody who does iniquity. Anybody in this room think they might be guilty of a bit of iniquity in their life? Yeah, bad news for you. God hates that and hates all those who commit iniquity. Very bad news. Then the news gets even worse for David because he says, and you do destroy those who speak falsehood and the Lord not just hates, abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Okay, there's those two categories. The liar He's already mentioned the arrogant, the proud, the prideful. Oh, and the one who commits bloodshed. Now, this has got to be really bad for King David. Turn to 1 Chronicles 28 for just a moment. Let's see what is said about King David by his own admission about being a man of bloodshed. 1 Chronicles 28, just back a couple of books. Right toward the end of the book, and we're just going to read the first six verses of First Chronicles 28. David has finally brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He wants to build a permanent place for it. It's been dwelling in tents. He's brought it from Hebron, the old capital. He's establishing Jerusalem as the new capital. And in chapter 28, verse 1, David assembled at Jerusalem all the tribes of Israel and the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and to his sons with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. And then King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and bloodshed. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, 
chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. That's a reference to the Davidic covenant that his household was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah, my tribe, to be the leader of all the tribes. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me, and he made me king over Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. And he said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. So here's David not even being able to complete his plans to build a permanent dwelling for the Ark of the Covenant, you would think that God would approve of that. Seemed like a good plan. I'm David. I'm the, pardon me? Man after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart. And God chose me and made me king and chose me out of the fields where I was being a shepherd. And yet, when I wanted to build the temple of the Lord, I was told by God, you can't do it because you're a man of bloodshed. Here we are back in the psalm. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed. God hates prideful, arrogant men. Was David ever prideful or arrogant? Well, we'd have to say, yeah. Oh, by the way, he hates those who speak falsehoods. Did David ever speak falsehoods? Like when he was running from his son and pretended he was mad and lied? And it, yeah, we'd have to say, yeah. So everything David is describing here about what God hates describes himself and describes all of us. And if he had stopped right there, this is really bad news for David and a really depressing song, which is why I really put plenty of emphasis on the bad news, on the corruption of human flesh, on the fact that we are totally depraved, there's that theology again of the New Testament that's written right in the Old Testament and demonstrated over and over again with that being our situation, that being our case. We don't even know how to pray the way we ought to. We don't know how to worship in spirit and in truth. We don't know how to stand before God. And we're all guilty as liars and fabricators and arrogant and prideful. Many of us are guilty of especially in David's case, bloodshed. So he has just admitted in this psalm, guilty, 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 and I still want God to listen to me. How can he say that? Because verse 7 starts, but as for me, I'm guilty. I'm gu I, I, Yeah, I'm guilty of all that. But when it comes to me, you don't treat me like you treat the rest of the world of sinners who you abhor as for me, by thine abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. That's how it happens. That's how it always happens. It always is a result of God's grace. It's never a result of people being so good or praying so accurately or being so holy. That's never the reason that God accepts people or has them worshiping before him. God doesn't have any evil about him. He hates, he abhors all transgression and sinfulness. And David lists sins that he himself is guilty of, 
and then does what we all need to do, which is to get our eyes off ourselves. And once God has cornered us with these groanings that are just too difficult to even verbalize, when we have nowhere else to go but him, we find Abba Father. We find the God of grace waiting to hear from us. And so David says, but as for me, by thine abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. And at thy holy temple, I will bow in reverence to you. That's proper worship. Recognizing your inability, that there's really no aspect of your life, even prayer, even worship, there's no part of it that you can do accurately and consistently and in such a way that God ought to approve of it. And yet grace and abundant loving kindness allows us to come before God and bow in reverence and worship to him. And Paul picks it up and says, and even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus Christ is alive to this very day, sitting on the right hand of God. And when we sin, he intercedes, he advocates for us. God is yet again providing absolutely everything necessary for our full, complete redemption and salvation eternally. It's always God in his sovereignty doing all of it. And here is David saying that very theology in Psalm 5. So where did Paul get it? It's right here. As for me, by thine abundant loving kindness, I will enter thy house. At thy holy temple, I will bow in reverence for thee, O Lord. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Part of his problem with his foes is that they were detractors who were constantly criticizing him and saying he didn't deserve to be king of Israel. So here is David in a very imprecatory way saying, lead me in your righteousness and then you deal with my enemies. Here's David recognizing yet again, I can't establish my own righteousness, and I can't defeat my enemies. I, in fact, can't do anything, and I'm the king. God has to do it all. Lord, lead me in your righteousness, because my foes, my enemies, my detractors. So make my way straight before me. Make thy way straight before me. That word straight doesn't mean geometrically straight. He's saying, clear it of the rocks and the mountains and all the hindrances that would stop me from pursuing you. So not only should you guide me in your righteousness, but you should give me the ability to even follow you, to even get to you. Verse 9, and there is nothing reliable in what my enemies are saying. They're saying all kinds of evil against me, but they're not saying things that are true about me. There's nothing reliable in their lying words because their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. Does that sound familiar? Because Paul picked it up. Paul imported it into the book of Romans again in order to say... David has already told us what the state of natural human beings is. He has already told us the depravity of human beings and what their mouths are like when they start lying. Let's have a quick look at it. It's in Romans 3. Turn over there real quick. 
the verse that we're going to hone in on is verse 13. Actually, we'll just read through it because it sounds so familiar, but I'm going to read the whole passage because this entire passage, with the exception of one sentence, which comes from Isaiah, everything else Paul says here comes from the Psalms. He took it all from King David. So he developed his theology of understanding the depravity and the depth of lying and pride and arrogance of human beings He developed that based on what King David had already said. So, in order to understand Paul and the depth of the things he is saying, we are benefited greatly to understand how David saw it first and how Paul commented on it. You get my point? Mm -hmm. Verse 9, what then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he launches into a string of statements from the Psalms. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. And there is none who seeks after God. So much for seeker-sensitive movements. There is nobody who seeks God because there is nobody who comprehends. There is nobody in their sin and depravity who understands the least thing about God. And none of us are righteous enough to impress God. All of us, verse 12, have turned aside and together they have become useless, pointless, nothing. And there is no one who does good. There is not even one. And yet I keep meeting people who seem to think they are the one. But there's none, according to Paul and according to David, not a one who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, the words that they use, their manner of speech, you can tell that they're dead men inside. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues, they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood there's that and destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known and there is no fear of God before their eyes that I am convinced is Paul's commentary on Psalms 5 verse 9 there is nothing reliable in what they say In their inward part, there is destruction itself, and their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongues. So hold them guilty, O God, says verse 10. Hold them guilty, O God, and by their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But... By contrast, let all who take refuge in you be glad and let them ever sing for joy and mayest thou shelter them. Just this past Sunday, we looked at the promise from God that he is going to put his tabernacle over that great throng of people that was in heaven, those that came out of the great tribulation. In the end, God tabernacles over them David saying the same thing. Put yourself over them, cover them, shelter them, protect them, that those who love thy name will exalt in you. Now, if you had something to do with your salvation, if you could take credit for any part of it, 
if you could say, well, God and me, we got me saved, we did it in a very cooperative, synergistic way, then you cannot bow down before God, get on your knees and say, it's all you. You did it all, completely you. Throughout the Bible, worship is always, just like we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, worship is always, it's you, it's all you, it's completely you. You did it, it's not about me. Now that I see you and I see how holy and righteous you are, all I see about me is how completely incapable I am, how destitute I am, and that I would be under your judgment were it not for your loving kindness and your grace and your goodness to me. David is saying the same thing here, that true worship exalts only in you. That's what we lift up. That's what we praise. And why do we do that? Because we love you. And where did we get that love? From him, because every aspect of it comes from him. We love God because he first loved us. The Bible is replete with these statements that God is love. God is the establisher of love, the foundation of love, the perfect example of love. And so all those who love you, God, who love your name, are going to exult in you. Because that's all we've got. For it is, verse 12, for it is you who does bless the righteous man. We just talked about this this past Sunday. Rather providential that that's the fact. But blessing, spiritual prosperity comes from God speaking well to us. And here David says, anyone who actually does get that blessing... It's because God blessed them and made them a righteous man. David started by saying, I can't even groan to you. I can't even talk to you. I'm, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm worried. I'm, I'm tormented by my enemies. And he admitted that God hates iniquity and sinfulness. And God hates lying and God hates bloodshed, and David is guilty of all of that. And by the end of the psalm, he is admitting that he is taking refuge in God because of God's everlasting loving kindness, which leads David in the ways of righteousness. And ultimately, David's got nowhere else to go but to take refuge in God and then sing for joy, which stands in contrast with, I couldn't even groan. I couldn't even find my words. I couldn't even vocalize to you. David makes it all the way over to, I sing. I sing to you for joy because you shelter your people and those who love your name will exalt in you because it is you who blesses the righteous man. Someday... Jeff's going to get all righteous. I know right now we're all kind of like, what? But someday, Jeff's going to stand before God completely righteous, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, imputed to his account. And when that happens, he's going to know what the real blessing of God is. And do you think he's going to take any credit for any part of that? Do you think he's going to say, yeah, well, I earned that? It's exactly what David's saying here, that you bless the righteous man. Men become righteous through the blessing of God, through him imparting that kind of spiritual prosperity to people. 
and you do surround him with favor. Grace, it's the same word. In the Hebrew, it, it means the same essential thing, unearned favor, unearned kindness from God. And to the person that God loves, you will surround him with that kind of favor and grace and loving kindness the same way as a shield. So while David is saying, God, protect me from my enemies, God, keep me from those liars who don't have anything reliable or worthwhile to say, but protect me from them. Protect me from my enemies. In the end, he's singing to God and worshiping God and recognizing that the only shield he needs is the shield of God's grace protecting him from this world. Is it worth pointing out that's all you need to? I mean, life gets tough. Life is hard. Life gets painful. Life gets emotionally debilitating. Sometimes you look at the world here and, and all you want to do is get out, go home. Or is that just me? I know that. I think that quite frequently. And I think, where's my shield? Where's my comfort? Where's my... Well, this world has no shield for you. It has no comfort for you. This world can't wait to kill you, and then it's just going to keep charging forward because you are nothing in this world. But God is your shield. He is your protector. He is your covering. He is your tabernacle over you, and he does all of that for you because of his loving kindness toward you, despite the fact that you deserve his wrath. Paul's theology of all that in the New Testament is drawn from what David already wrote in Psalms like Psalm 5. Get the big picture? Yep. All right. Then I'm done. Starts with groaning, ends with singing. Starts with groaning, ends with singing, which, by the way, perfectly explains my life. <laughs> Lots of groaning, and it's going to end in singing, and I can't wait. Any questions? Yes, sir. I, it just resonated with me, jumped off the pages here, kind of with David emphasizing again and again about deceitfulness. You know, verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. Uh, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 9, there's no truth in their mouth. In John, we're learning about Christ, and he's the truth, you know, mm -hmm. the, the light, and that everything that poses him is this deceitfulness. That is the, the hallmark of the opposite side. Of course, you know, you know that yeah. Satan is the father of lies and just this idea of deception being the great opposition. Yeah. And, you know, of course, when we get to, when we're studying it in Revelation, we get to the, the lawless one uh, who comes, as, as 2 Thessalonians tells us, who comes by the working, the activity of Satan with all power, signs, false wonders, and yeah. deceitfulness, deceit, deception of wickedness, yeah. that this deception is just such a big part of the enemy. And doesn't it feel like we live in a world that's just rife with deception right now? Well, there's so much information that it's just... It's a blur. Everywhere. It's or confusion. It's with, yeah. Well, that's what the scriptures say, the end times men will grow worse and worse being... Deceiving and being deceived. They're deceiving each other. So there's so much yeah. deception. And then God turns them over to that strong delusion so they'll believe the lie and be condemned. I mean, it's, 
Deception everywhere. It's a hallmark of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, doing what he does in the world. Yeah. And, no. I mean, that makes perfect sense why David would say that. Yeah. That God hates it. Yeah. yeah. And that his son would come to the planet and say, I'm the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good comment. There, that raised the bar. So now the rest of you, go ahead, try to compete with that. So. Amen. thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace midweek message we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books q a's and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.